Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Mark Oppenheimer. Mark wrote the Beliefs column for the New York Times from 2010 until the summer of 2016, and is now a contributing opinion writer for the Los Angeles Times. He is most proud, however, to be one of the only writers ever to contribute to both the Christian Century and Playboy magazine. He's also the co-host of the wildly popular podcast, Unorthodox, along with Leo Leibowitz and Stephanie Butnick. That's actually how we met through the world of podcasting, and Mark has become a real friend. And he's also written a piece recently about how he's a real Jew and why the word Jew needs to be recovered in our culture. I give you my friend, Mark Oppenheimer. Mark Oppenheimer, you are a real Jew. <laughs> I, 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 and <laughs> nobody knows it better than you, Scott Jones. Yeah, that's like the least Jewish name uh, possible, I think. It's pretty high up there, although... You know, Jones is one of those names that's so basic in its Anglo-ness that Jews trying to pass might sometimes go for it. Like like Miller, for example, is a very crypto-Jewish name. Um, when, I, when I meet a Miller, I think you could be a Jew because so many Jews chose it. I don't think that many Jews chose uh, Jones or Smith, but Miller Green is a very Jewish name. There, there are these names. There are these names. So you just wrote something for the New York Times, and you want to. You have on your podcast unorthodox, which I feel like I am such an evangelist for. Like, it's, and that's what Christians do. Yes, we evangelize. You, you have sent us many of our finest listeners. And we I, 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 I pride myself on that. But you, you have always defended the term Jewess. I have, and and you recently wrote in the New York Times an op-ed where, which was commented. Uh, on in the American Conservative by Rod Dreher about people defending the word Jew. So why yes. do you want people to call you a Jew? I noticed that. Well, it started when I was looking at Passover and Easter proclamations. The president usually, whoever he is, sends out or you know proclaims uh, good tidings to Jews on Passover and Christians on Easter. Often it's in that Ronald Reagan did it. Would do it in the same message because the two holidays often coincide more or less. Trump actually forgot to do it, it seems. He did it on something like day four of the of Passover, which is an eight-day holiday. Um, but I've noticed that Reagan, Obama, and Trump all did this thing where they would say, you know, we're sending all of our gratitude and, and good tidings and best wishes to Christians across the land, as well as Jewish families and Jewish homes and Jewish people. So Christians got to be individuals. Christians got the noun. Whereas Jews were referred to as Jewish families, Jewish people. It was like this adjective thing where like these blobs, these groupings that happened to be Jewish as opposed to Christians. And it struck me there's, it, it has always struck me there's a reason why people do that. I actually noticed it for the first time when I was at the Hartford Current in 2000, after Gore Lieberman had just lost the presidential race but won the popular vote, and I wrote something to the effect of, um, you know, if you were to go by the popular vote, then um, then we would have uh, Joe Lieberman, a Jew, as vice president. And the copy editor changed it and said, 
said we would have Joe Lieberman, a Jewish vice president. And I said, why can't we just have that little appositive there, Joe Lieberman, a Jew? He said, well, because that's anti-Semitic. I said, why is it anti-Semitic to say that someone's a Jew if in fact he's a Jew? He said, well, because Jew is a slur. And of course, there is a, a kind of folk wisdom in that, which is to a lot of people, Jew is a slur. Um, Louis C.K. does this very funny routine where he says that you know, Jew is the only word that's both the polite word for a group and also the slur against the group. It all depends how it's said and whose mouth it's coming out of. And, you know, you can definitely feel this when you talk about, when you, when you use an intensifier, like to call someone a real Christian is a super high compliment, but to call someone a real Jew is obviously an insult. And so I just was thinking about that and I thought, well, we Jews have to reclaim the word Jew. I mean, we just have to. It, it, it can't be that Jew, which is fundamentally the best word in English right now for what we are ever since people stopped calling us Hebrews and Israelites, we, it can't be that the word Jew is just a slur. And I think that means that we Jews have to start calling ourselves Jews. So if someone says, oh, you know, interesting last name, what are you? I should say I'm a Jew, not I'm Jewish. Not that there's a huge difference and not that there's anything wrong with Jewish, but I just, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing for the noun. Is this like I feel like this is an original thought? I have not read this. Uh, well, I mean, you, I mean, you could, I guess, you could f you footnote Louis C.K. But yeah, I like well, <laughs> your own sort of like apparently, you know, one of the nice things about writing for, for a large audience in a place like the Times is you get a lot of uh, you crowdsource everything that's wrong with your piece. So I got really nice notes from a lot of listeners saying things like, um, "Oh, the, you know, Louis C.K. did this," or. Um, the, the sitcom community, the Chevy Chase show community had a bit about this. Um, I got an amazing sermon, a Yom Kippur sermon from 2015 sent to me by a Los Angeles rabbi named Zoe Klein, who seems like maybe she should be on your show. It was that good a sermon, basically making exactly my argument. Why are we always Jewish, but never just Jews? Um, I mean, she basically, if you, if I'd seen her piece, you would have thought I plagiarized her piece, except I'd never seen her sermon. So um, I don't think it's – I think other people have had this thought. I think it's been out there. I, I'm sure there are more instances of it before my writing this piece, but I'm glad to have put it into the popular discourse a bit more. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. Like I um, – so I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan this weekend to see my sister-in-law graduate from Eastern Michigan University. Nice. And But UM is there too. And my wife Lindy and I on Sunday went to Missouri Synod – Lutheran Church, which was lovely, uh, sure. unremarkable and lovely at the same time. And I wandered into this bookstore called The Dawn Treader, which did, which is a C.S. Lewis kind of reference, but I don't uh -huh. think it was a Christian bookstore. It was an amazing used bookstore, one of the best I've ever been in. And I found a Franz Rosenzweig, mm -hmm. about, a book about Rosenzweig, who I like a lot, by um, presented by Naaman Glatzer, who uh -huh. it's kind of, it's, it, it's called Franz Rosenzweig, His Life and Thought. And it's mostly letters and then uh, Glatzer's annotations. But I want to read you a paragraph that okay. I came across in this book. He says, the, the connection of the innermost heart with God, which the heathen can only reach through Jesus, is something the Jew already possesses, provided that his Judaism is not withheld from him by force. He possesses it by nature, through having been born one of the chosen people. A Christian need only be a Christian to be at the same time a missionary. By this, I don't mean the Christianity of the registrar's office, just as a Jew only needs to be a Jew to arouse a Christian's Christianity if he has forgotten it. Here again, I am not speaking of the Judaism of the registrar's office. <laughs> <laughs> now, your friend, our mutual friend, and your colleague and co-host, Liel Leibowitz, I think takes particular delight in ragging on Judaism of the registrar's office, right. uh, a.k.a. 
bagels in Seinfeld right. and right. maternal vagina Jewishness kind of stuff. <laughs> but what, like, that's an interesting question. Mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I got this very angry or angered email from Michael, somebody. I, I shouldn't reveal his name here because the email may have been intended confidentially, but who was very irate, irate in the way that like, he's such a, he's such a heretic. He's one step away from being ultra Orthodox. If you know what I mean, um, <laughs> you know, saying like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't, nobody, you know, all of my ancestors were Jews, but nobody in my family has believed in God for four generations. And we don't speak Hebrew and we've never been to Israel. And there's nothing about the culture that speaks to us. And like, why are you going to call me a Jew? Hmm. And I wrote back, I was like, well, because you are, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know, because whether you think that it's, you know, whether you ascribe to what it says in Torah, which is we're all cousins or whether you just believe in the history of it, which is that we're all, at least in the Ashkenazi world, but probably beyond that as well, we're all related or whether you listen to the anti-Semites who say that, you know, one drop of Jewish blood is enough or Hitler said one Jewish grandparent or you know, whether you just- Hitler, who was a vegetarian. Right, right of course. The great vegetarian. I mean, I like, kind of knew that, but I didn't know the extent. Like me, it, a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> or, you know, whether you just look at um, at sort of our shared history, which is, you know, a people marching through time, creating a community um, in, you know, ghettoized and, and homogeneous conditions. However you look at it, dude, like you're a Jew, except, except for- the fact that you don't believe anything, but actually many Jews throughout history, possibly a majority, we don't know, were also heretics, atheists, or were not orthodox in their religiosity, or were not theologically learned enough to really know what they were ascribing to. So, but, so as I just said, like, what's, what's your problem with it? Just be a Jew. And, um, he was very irate about that. Liel and I basically agree that there's something very thin to use a very Christian term, something very thin. Why is that a Christian term thin? Well, because isn't it, no, actually, it comes out of well in anthropology. It's Clifford Geertz's term, but I feel. Tell me if I'm wrong. Isn't it a term that Christian theologians like? Wasn't it Tillich or somebody? Hmm. I feel so like, you're saying like thick versus thin, like thick description with Geertz. Thick, right? But then you're saying like theologically. Basically, it's like theology light. Yeah, and Christian theologians are always talking about kind of a practice or a theology being thin, and they use you know it's a kind of like liberal Protestants are thinner than you know evangelicals basically, but that's probably true metaphorically yeah and it's probably true in all sorts of ways right it's interesting because like in the past it was great to be overweight you were the boss and the right. workers were all thin now if you're the boss you have discretionary time and can get to the expensive get to the gym and, your and your workers are fast. You, so, eat yeah, more, it, you eat more you know, liberal be protestants are actually thin and <laughs> so <laughs> one place where i mean leal and i tend to agree that you know, people should probably, if they're interested in Judaism, move beyond the idea that just what TV you watch or what your favorite brunch food is constitutes Judaism. Now, that said, um, I differ from that a little bit in that I am fully ready to ascribe full Jewishness to people who are halakhically Jewish, ancestrally Jewish. Um, you know, some would say only on the mother's side, the reform movement would say mother or father's side. But to me, it's actually theologically really significant. It's th significant in a very thick, rigorous theological way that Judaism is an ans is a religion of heritability and ancestry. That is very much how we define ourselves as against the Christian notion that you either have to opt in or be opted in by your parents. Um, so, um, you know, to me, like, while it's true that I would like some of my, I feel that some of the Jews I know who are interested in Judaism would be more fulfilled in their own Judaism, which I wish for them, if they took a slightly more interest in ritual practice or, 
uh, religious learning, what have you. I am also very insistent at the same time in a way that sometimes I think Liel forgets to be, that they are every bit as Jewish as I am because you know it, it, is, it is not something that you have to earn in Judaism. Um, or something that has to be chosen for you. For those of us born into it, it is something we simply have. And that is a theological precept we, we don't want to lose sight of. Um, it also, I think, uh, enforces a kind of humility to our thinking, which is that it's a reminder, and this is very much in the tradition, that the best Jew or the one most likely to be the Messiah or the one who's, whose moral grandeur is so great that he or she will herald the, the, the Messianic age may be a poor unlearned uh, Jew who's outwardly not particularly observant, who's outwardly not particularly pious, but just happens to do extraordinary acts of loving kindness mm-hmm. versus the you know super learned like yeshiva Rebbe who may in fact be a jerk um, and that only in the end God knows. And so that's a reminder to treat all people as if, as if they were the Messiah in disguise. And if we limit ourselves to that kind of reverence or great treatment to the people who are outwardly super righteous, then we're probably going to miss it. Frederick Schleiermacher, in the beginning of his Christian faith, uh, he says he's trying to basically get at, which is his sort of systematic explanation. He's writing in the early 19th century of like what the Christian sure. thing is. And he, he says, you know, well, is Christian, you know, is it a matter of knowing? That's impossible because if it were, theologians would be the best Christians. And everyone knows that's not true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so obvious. It can't exactly. be about... Yeah, I think that that's... that's interesting. You know, Rosenzweig also says that basically he, he, he almost became a Christian and decided to return very consciously to his Judaism and, and embraced it in an incredibly thoughtful and creative way. But he says that God raised up the church to take... so that the God of Israel could be made known to the nations. And God ra- raised, has, Israel's function is to, if, if Christianity's function is to, is to bear witness to the pagans, uh, to, to the God of Israel, that the Jews' calling is to convert the inner pagan at the heart of every Christian. Hmm. I, I, there se- it seems to me that like if, when the church gets away from Israel's scriptures, it gets abstract uh, it can become very tribal. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a weird, the universal, universality and particularity thing with Jews and Christians is an interesting dynamic, no? I mean, yeah, I do. I mean, in some ways, it's a conversation I'm not super qualified to enter into and that Jews aren't because, you know, uh, a theologically learned or curious Jew typically knows far less about the New Testament than a theologically learned and curious Christian knows. You are, you or, are no typical learned yeah, but curious it, Jew. <laughs> I'm, not sure I've, I'm not sure I've ever read every page of the New Testament. You know, I've certainly read the gospels um, and I've read, you know, a good amount of the epistles, but not, you know, they just aren't. Titus. <laughs> right, exactly. They, they, I mean, it was, I think I was, I think I was, you know, 40 or 38 before I, when, when I finally figured out how to, that it was Galatians, not Galadians. Um, I think I wanted to sound like gladiator more, but so they teach kids how you remember the order, like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. No, oh, there was, there's Galatians. a mnemonic. Go eat popcorn. Go eat. Po- <laughs> um, I mean, I remember the order in the King James Bible. It's not the same in other Bibles of Joshua judges Ruth, because that's the title of the great Lyle Lovett album. Um, Joshua judges Ruth. Um, <laughs> it's so, a great Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Love Lyle Lovett. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there could be, I'm not sort of ready quite yet to ascribe 
as Rosenzweig does, a kind of direction to history that required that the Christian church rise up. I mean, there's something, while he did not himself become a Christian or or practice Christianity, it is interesting how he split the difference and still said Christians are somehow part of the divine plan and somehow necessary. I'm a bit, it's not that I have a problem with that. In my own personal um, sensibility, I'm a bit more of a mysterian than that, which is to say like, I don't, if there's a God controlling history or unspooling history or giving us the tools to unspool it ourselves, I, I'm, He's so remote. He has become so remote. He's retreated so much since biblical times that I have no idea why anything happens. I mean, there might be a purpose, but Lord only knows. Like my access to it is so, so weak and so attenuated. And so I'm not as likely to make, I think actually that's a big difference. It feels, and this may, tell me if this is somehow slurring Christians, but it feels to me like a big difference between Jews and Christians that Christians, even the ones who aren't like really providential, like even the ones who aren't going around saying that everything is providence, still have a providential sense, still have a sense that like it's all in the grand plan. They feel the plan kind of lurking right behind a scrim. And Jews tend to be very fatalistic. Like if there's a plan, we don't know it. Um, it's obviously not been good for us. Like it's very hard to believe in a in a fair, in a in a reasonably present plan, because if it's really present, if it's really immediate in fairly concrete ways, then it's very hostile to us, right? Hmm. So the only way you can do Jewish theology, like in a post-Holocaust world, and Jews have often been post, you know, if not post-Holocaust, post-pogrom, is to assume that the plan is like deeply unknowable and mysterious and not even really worth pondering. Like, you know, and we do have this tradition that, you know, God receded from history, stopped acting in history, you know, basically stopped sending prophets after a while. And now it's all on us and, and, and it's about human agency. And that doesn't mean there's not a great and grand and omnipotent God, but, but, you know, the Torah is not in heaven. The Torah was given to us at Sinai. And so we have to figure this stuff out. And so I think that kind of providentialism, that sense of, ah, but the Christians had to come along to help us do the work. Yeah. you know, is 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 the Christian in Rosenzweig talking? It's interesting because I think someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right, who in letters and papers from prison, you know, he's he's in prison because of his resistance right. to to Hitler, and he in letters and papers from prison, he says something about um, godlessness and the possibility of godlessness in the modern world, and basically he says that of course godlessness would be a possibility if the creator was the one that allowed himself to be pushed outside the camp and crucified. So I think there's something where Christians are, even conservative Christians, uh, orthodox, relatively orthodox theologically, are coming to a, a similar place mm-hmm. where if there's a plan, there's this guy I'm reading right now, Tomos Halik, who's the best theologian I've read in a long time. And he was, he became a priest behind the Iron Curtain in a secret seminary. And they were flying in people like Charles Taylor to teach this underground, this underground seminary classes. And he got to know John Paul. He was ordained the day after John Paul was made Pope. And they had this relationship and eventually met. And Halik wrote this book called Patience with God. And he says, you know, I, that he sees fundamentalism and atheism as both forms of theological impatience. Mm. And he says, it has this great ellipsis to the book, quoting this Egyptian layman. that He says, um, patience... Uh, with yourself is faith. Patience with others is love and patience with God is hope. Huh, that's good. That's yeah. Good. Hey, can I change the subject and ask you something? As- Absolutely, Mark. So I have noticed in the writing and thinking of some Christians, some what I might call sort of, 
I don't want to say progressive evangelicals, but definitely non-fundamentalist, um, comfortable with modernity evangelicals, the kind of people who really love C.S. Lewis. Uh, <laughs> of course, all you guys love C.S. Lewis. But And also I've noticed this in particular with converts, um, people who were born Catholic or Jewish or just – or people who came to the faith a bit late. Maybe they were born you know, ancestrally Protestant, but they really got religion at some point. And they – and people – and therefore – they want to be fairly well-versed in apologetics. They want to be able to defend their faith. I've noticed this tendency, and maybe it's ubiquitous, and I'm just kind of noticing it, in a certain kind of apologetics to talk about how there are certain problems in history or in, in theodicy for which the only logical answer is that God would have crucified himself and risen three days later. And therefore, like logically, it's not just that there has to be a God, but that there has to be the Christian, that, that the story of Jesus Christ is the only logical answer and that there's a kind of, and, and basically what they're saying is there's a kind of stubbornness or just blindness to people who don't see not only that, you know, God is out there and God's in your heart and God, you know, and it's not even like intelligent design. Look at the glory of the world. There has to be God. It's really like, if you look at the problem of evil, or if you look at, you know, certain other questions and think about it properly, the only possible way would be if God actually came to earth and killed himself or had himself killed. Um, yeah, yeah, I think— You see this in Richard Swinburne, who sees it as logically necessary that there have been not just a version of a Christian story with a human messiah who's already come, but that particular version. Um, you know where else I saw it was Leah Labresco, who writes for Patheos, who's a convert to Catholicism, who, who was—her parents, I think her mom was Jewish. Oh, yeah, 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 and, yeah, um, yeah. And I heard it somewhere else recently, and it always strikes me as, like, kind of hostile, like, people who don't see that Christianity must be the answer are a little bit dim or stubborn. What? Yeah, here's what I think about that. I think that, that, the okay, this is so close to the truth, and yet Aristotle says there are different kinds of truths, right? You can't expect, you know, rhetoric and mathematics are both sciences, but the kinds of truth you find in them are different. Yeah. And to, to ask for the same kind of precision, you just, you don't get it. I think that there's a Christian psychiatrist who died in the early 80s. I think so much of his name is Frank Lake, and he wrote a thousand page uh, book called Clinical Theology, which was trying to bridge psychiatry and theology. It's, fa it's fabulous. I mean, I've never, I mean, it's incredibly profound. And in the beginning, he says, you know, he says something like this. If you think of your humanity as something a container which ought to have something good in it, then inevitably, because we're all ambiguous and you know mixed bags, you know, you're going to look inside and say, "Am I worth anything?" Basically, and you're going to find that the cupboard is bare, right? <laughs> and he says, you know, if you but when the bottom gets knocked out of your humanity, it ruins it as a container, but enables it to be a channel, and where that's what we're meant to be—a channel of the life and energy of God Himself. Uh -huh. And so, basically, what he's saying there's the Brene Brown kind of vulnerability thing. It actually most of the time. When we thrive, it's in the midst of weakness and vulnerability and fragility. You know, oftentimes, you know, people that have learned the most have done it in the school of suffering. And so I think that part of the compelling nature of the Christian story is that God becomes, and you get this in Judaism too. Like, I mean, it's not quite up to the incarnation, but it, you know, especially intertestamental Judaism, it, it, not just here, but like that God is a fellow sufferer. And I think that 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 is existentially compelling, and that that basically, you know, Peter Lighthart, who's a really interesting theologian, he says you know, you could read the the wrong way to read the book of 
first and second kings, or as Trump would say, one and two kings, <laughs> is, is, is not Israel has screwed up. Now get your life together, like the Deuteronomist says, so you can get back on the straight and narrow. He says it's more like Israel has sinned. Israel must die and put your hope in the one who raises the dead, like Ezekiel, can these bones live and, and the hope of return from exile. So I think that like th- that rhetorical strategy is not a bad one. It just sounds silly when you try to make analytic proofs out of it <laughs> to me. Yeah, no, I think, I think, but also like there's this kind of certainty with which they talk about it. Like, well, how could it be otherwise? Well, you know, so, so they'll say things like, you know, if God was going to allow that much suffering in the world, surely he'd want to come suffer along with us. Right. Um, and you could say, well, okay. Um, first of all, that that's not necessarily true, but let's assume that it's true because it is existentially compelling. He could be suffering, uh, you know, in the ether, he could be suffering in his, like, there was no reason, there's no logical reason that that this form of suffering his would take would be a human suffering. Right. I mean, it's, it's, but, but it is compelling. I mean, it's a good, it's, it's a powerful and persuasive story, but it's not a logically necessary one. I mean, I'm just restating what you said, which is trying to kind of put too much analytical pressure on it. It's, it, it always surprises me because I, I always think, don't you want your story to keep all of its, you know, majestic mystery and unknowability? Like, do you want it to be analytically provable? Would, doesn't that demean it a little bit? It's like those people just need to spend like an hour and a half with a Kierkegaard reader. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what's compelling, right? I mean, part of and not that, I mean, I, you know, I think there is a sense in which, uh, yeah, I did PhD work in theology, Princeton Seminary. And I mean, I like it, I, I like to think my faith is a faith seeking understanding and that sort of stuff. And that this, the whole thing is not completely absurd, but at the same time, yeah, it's at the heart of the Christian story is paradox and, and sort of, and that's part of it. That's why, like, it, like that's something it's it sort of don't like cover that lead with that. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. And that's, and that's part of what makes it psychologically and pastorally and re- emotionally compelling. Right. Because our, cause life is paradoxical. Right. And so oftentimes if the, if the heart of faith is paradox, then all these paradoxes in our lives then can be interpreted in light of that mysterious thing. Right. So it's, it's sort of like wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Well, which my you know, wife told I, me, I didn't know the origin of that statement until a few weeks ago. She told me, because I was like, I always want to eat my cake. What is she's, the origin? You know, she's like, no, it's like your wedding cake. Like where you want to have it to preserve. Oh. Like, but yet you want to eat I it see. too. I, was like, I see. Oh, now it makes now sense. Now it makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think we, you know, we both know Bart Campolo. And one of the things I find very compelling about him, and I know we have, you know, probably different takes on, on his work and what he does, but is that he admits something that I actually have always found to be deeply true, or I shouldn't say he admits it. He agrees. He says, it's actually a really bad story to tell people that they're all deeply flawed and that they're all sinners and that, you know, there may be no hope for any of them, but they've got to keep trying. And that, and I would sort of add to that, that doesn't mean it's wrong, but it's a story that puts a lot that Christians have a weird way of thinking of that as an optimistic story. And I see that as a really, really despairing story. Um, Like it's not a story that compels me. I think that might just be because I have very high self-esteem. I mean, not to be, not to trivialize it, but I've never felt like this very, very fallen sinner, like just groveling and hoping for compassion. I've never really felt like I need God's forgiveness. I have 
often felt like I need my fellow man's forgiveness. I mean, I, I, I often have days where I come home and I say to Sid, you know, my wife, I say, oh, I just really, I snapped at this person in a meeting today and I, I saw the look on his face and I knew that I'd made him feel terrible. And, you know, this morning I yelled at the kids and they hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, there are days when I feel like all I do is walk through and hurt people. And because I got too little sleep or because I'm selfish or whatever. And I feel like I want nothing more than their forgiveness. But the reason I feel so terrible is because I feel like it was well within my power to behave better and I failed. Um, I personally have never had a sort of unconquerable, um, like, uh, you know, habit or vice where I felt like I need God to forgive. Even, I mean, I have a certain amount of pride and immodesty, but I don't actually, I don't think that makes me a terrible person. I think that makes me human in, a, in an okay way. So I don't, I don't, I've never had the sense of like, I really need forgiveness from God, from something bigger than the people I've wronged. Yeah, I think like, who's the guy that wrote, uh, uh, reading how Proust can change your life. Oh, Alain de, Alain de Botton. Yeah. Alain de Botton. Yeah. So I heard him on Krista Tippett's show on being, and he, he's a guy that is, but you know, a very reflective atheist who has a deep appreciation for the Western theological tradition. And he talked about original sin as incredibly comforting. And in that, the sense of, that we're all mixed bags. We're all, uh, you know, uh, it, Luther's great insight, right? Sama justus epicator. At the same time, sinner and saint. Paul's all says today, he, w- he would translate that as, I can be at the same time loved and human. That, that, that you're sort of moments of impatience, uh, moments of, uh, you know, things that show up from our family system that plague us. And, sure. Play out, they play out in office culture and, you know, in, in our own families. That, that part of the human story is that, that God is a friend to sinners and that we all are, are uh, you know, we're all treasure in clay jars kind of thing. I, that's where I think it's compelling in that it, it's sort of this, you don't have to, it's the Brene Brown thing. Again, it, it's the sort of permission to be, uh, finite, fragile, faltering, uh, mistaken, wounded, it, it, and, and that, that the, the moments that are tragic or even just disappointing to your others are not the sum total of your story right. or the human story. I, that's where... No, I, I, I understand that. And by the way, I think there are a dozen or more other other narratives that pull people into Christianity, one of which might be that it's true, and they see that in a moment of of... of of insight or they grow toward it. And I, I allow for that, right? But bracketing that, there are other sociological narratives and narratives coming out of their family systems and narratives coming out of their personal journeys that could pull people in that I think could be very compelling. Yeah, yeah, I'm speaking, yeah, I'm speaking yeah. particularly to the one of like that need to be forgiven. Um, I've never felt that my failures are the sum total of who I am. <laughs> I've always felt like, <laughs> I've always felt like I'm a pretty great guy. And, and I have days where I'm, where I'm not my best self and I, and I cause pain, I cause harm. And look, I mean, I've done journalism that, you know, tells the stories of some very bad people who then, and when, when it's revealed, um, you know, it's really hurt them. Now I've, I think it's worth doing because I think that, that we have to, there's a role for a free press exposing the harm that people do, but I'm also very aware that, you know, these people are fragile. And then when you expose their harm, you sometimes destroy that. The punishment is often quite severe and that they have 
wives, husbands, children. I'm aware that I'm punishing their innocent teenage children who then have to read about them. I mean, I have enormous conflict about the things that I do, probably none more than when I yell at my children when they don't deserve it. Um, so I do understand, but I've never felt like that's the sum total of who I am or that I'm really, really broken or that. But, but, you know, I can see, I can see people, I can see how people get there. I mean, I've known addicts, I've known people who can't control their anger. And so every day they just go around hurting people. Um, so I see it. It's just never, it's, as I said, it's like, I am temperamentally very ill-suited to that narrative of, of I'm going to go look for forgiveness in religion. You're temperamentally suited to be an Episcopalian. I am? <laughs> there's this joke, right? You know, there's this, um, there's a Catholic, uh, a Baptist and Episcopalian in hell. And the devil he first turns to the Catholic. Go, do you know why I'm here? Well, yeah, I, I know why I'm here. I, you know, I just I, I was a hardworking guy, and I, I you know, I, I, I worked hard at my business, and I tried to be a good dad, but I was I was always having affairs. I was an adulterous guy. And, and the devil, you're absolutely right, throws him in, into the fire. So this is the Baptist. Well, what about you? Well, I was a deacon at the church, and I didn't have affairs, but I I really struggled with drinking on and off as kind of a binge alcoholic. You're right. Throws him into the fire. And the Episcopalian, you know why you're here? I'm just curious. Like, I do remember once I ate the whole meal with my salad fork. (laughs) 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 But yeah, so I'm going to interview Rob Bell later today. Uh I was was listening to his podcast. He he had Pete Holmes on, the comedian who has that new show, Crashing. Uh And... I find Rob Bell incredibly compelling uh-huh. as a communicator. And he said that he and Pete Holmes were talking about the end of crashing. And there's this baptism scene. I haven't seen it yet, but there's this baptism scene. And Pete says, but it's not a forgiveness narrative so much as they want to be home. And Rob said, said that, that there are three main biblical narratives, right? In, in, in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. One is a forgiveness, cleansing, expiation, taking away sin, guilt narrative, right? Another is a liberation narrative of, of, of being delivered from something that can find you. Mm-hmm. or hemmed you. And then the third one, he says, is, is an exile and return to home story. And of course, I mean, the exile <laughs> shapes so much of sure. it. And so I actually think that that exile return to home story is the most relevant one in public life right now. Because America is so interesting, right? Everyone feels like an exile. If you're a gun rights person, you feel like everyone wants to take your guns. If you're a gun control person, yeah. you feel like the NRA is running the world. If you're a conservative, oh, Obama, yeah, everybody, the socialists are taking over. If you're a liberal, oh, it's a right wing yeah. takeover. You know, if you're uh, religious, oh my gosh, everything's getting so secular. If you're Bill Maher, oh my God, Christians run the world and it's so right. Jesus. So everyone, something about American life tends to get people in an exilic mindset. That's interesting. You know, I had almost that same conversation with 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 Rusty Reno, with R.R. Reno, editor of First Things. And I, I assume he wouldn't mind my sharing this. I think, you know, it was it was it wasn't we weren't planning to, you know, share it with the world. But we were we were chatting one time on the phone, I think after First Things had run something about me that I thought was unfair. So I figured I'm gonna pick up the phone and call him. And um we were taught he was talking about sort of the the just the liberal turn in American culture about the, you know, gay rights and this and that. And I said, well, I see it with gay rights. I see it with certain assumptions about women in the workplace and divorce and all sorts of things that, you know, at this point may be inevitable. And Rusty's not someone who's trying to turn back the clock to pre-modern times in those ways. But I said, but, you know, an abortion is a little bit contested. There's evidence that it's a pendulum that swings both ways in public opinion. I said, but 
you know, you, you think that conservatives are in exile It's like you control like 40 state houses and legislatures. I said, you have states like Kansas where literally they're living the business libertarian dream. Like, what are you talking about? Where, where the state. <laughs> what? And bankrupting the state. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's worked out about as well as all reputable economists would expect. But I said, but what are you talking about? Like Republicans have tons of power everywhere and they're instituting their sort they're destroying unions and instituting their low tax paradise and gun rights aren't really under threat anyway. I mean, ev- you know, everywhere you, you go, you can buy guns. The question is like, do you have to have a one day waiting period or no waiting period? And, and he sort of paused and said, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. It depends how you look at it, which way you turn it, how, you know, who's, who's, who's suffering most, who's most, I mean, to use your language, most in exile. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think there is something excel, which is interesting because I do think that there used to be a greater sense of like unity and optimism. Um, I think there are probably some pretty mundane reasons why we all feel terrible these days, probably has a lot to do with the media we consume and, um, with the sense in, that in certain very real ways, things are getting worse and not better. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I heard Tim Keller on Morning Joe a couple of years ago and he was promoting a book. He was actually on with a rabbi. Sometimes they would do these Faith Fridays things. Yep. And Mike Barnacle said to him, you know, what about all the demonization? What do you do with it? And Keller had a really interesting answer. He said, you know, well, the problem is idolatry. It's, it's idolizing. And then you have to demonize. He said, what do you mean? Well, if you idolize the free market, and think it's the solution to everything. You have to demonize government, you know. And likewise, if you idolize the government's capacity to create a social system that's above all fair and, and equal outcomes, then you have to demonize the market, you know. Or like that, that when you when something becomes an idol, when some, when you know it becomes ideological in the worst sense, then it always leads to demonizing. Where if you could hold ideas a little more loosely, you you don't need to. Demon, you, you can you can disagree without being disagreeable, that kind of thing. And I think yeah, I mean, as it happens, just for what it's worth, I disagree with that analysis. Like, I actually, and I disagree with it because I, you know, I have a data set of of one, but it's a really important one. It's me, which is like I really want the government very involved in providing a social safety net, but I don't have to do. De- you know, I can still talk about. I know a lot of kind of center left liberals, like you know, like I'm feeling this morning. Some days I feel more to the left, and some days more to the right. But I know a lot of sort of consensus Obama type center-left liberals who actually think the market's terrific and also think that government oversight and intervention is terrific. And I know, I mean, for me to find people on the left who really demonize the markets in the way that I think most people on the right demonize the government since Reagan, I have to go pretty far to the left. And I have those friends on Facebook and a lot of them, I mean, and and they're not crazies. They are real. A lot of them were involved in the Sanders campaign. A lot of them are, um, you know, labor activists and professors and people who you know are professionally on the left in various ways. Um, it is it is it is a column on the left, but it's really dwarfed by people who are like, yeah, the market's great. It gives us lots of good cheap stuff, but we need a lot of government too. Um, I would say that's different between degree and kind. Like, so I, it's not to me like, oh, if you're idolatrous, if you're all the way to the left. It's do ideas do kind of identity work in a way that a, a healthy human being probably is a little more balanced. So, like, I know people that are uh, way left of center who uh, can really dialogue with people, think they're right. But, you know, Cornell West is an example of somebody like that who gets along with kind of everybody. And, yeah. and, and, and there are people that are centrist, but they're dicks like because they're centrist. Oh, that's true. You know, you know, so I think it's it's not about like well, well, idolatry means you're. This is something, by the way. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about, which is why are there so few adults out there? And and 
um, by which I mean people who just have a kind of sense of their own, um, who are secure enough that they have a sense of humor, they can self-deprecate, they can they can laugh at their own foibles, they can listen to other people's points of view without demonizing them. And I think about this because I'm now 42, I'm about the age that my parents were when they really snap into focus in my own life, right? So my parents were 30 and 29 when I was born. So if I think back to when do I really start remembering my mom and dad, it was maybe when I was 10 or 12, right? You know, obviously I have memories before then, but they're very, very hazy because they're, they're very much refracted by childhood, right? But, you know, so I have a sense of who my parents were when they were 42. And my parents are not perfect people. They're flawed people and I've had fights with them and there are ways in which I idolize them and think that they were terrific and better than I'll ever be. And there are ways in which I've led my life differently. And, um, but they were, they were adults, you know, I mean, they didn't, have petty fights with the neighbors. They didn't sue people. They didn't swear needlessly for no reason. They didn't, you know, wear flip flops. Like you guys do on an order. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, you know, they didn't wear flip flops to funerals. I mean, they didn't like, and I mean that literally and metaphorically, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. they, and the, by the way, they're not, they weren't squares. I mean, they were kind of, you know, they're pretty left wing and they had friends who smoked weed and we were part of a kind of hippie daycare cooperative when I was young. I mean, they were like pretty countercultural, but they were of a generation. They'd grown up in the fifties. They were baby boomers where you just had a certain sense of like decency and adulthood and decorum and you believed in etiquette and you believe, and you just, and you didn't pick stupid needless fights and you didn't feud. And I remember them watching Ronald Reagan on the nightly news and they would kind of shake their heads and they thought absolutely the worst of him. But there was no part of them that wanted to descend into a kind of like Fox News or whatever the equivalent on the left is, anger and rage and and spitefulness about it. They believed they were part of a political process that hopefully would prevail and turn the tide back toward the left. Yeah. And and they just yeah. like yeah. when I think of how they moved through the worlds from dropping us off at school to going to work to going to a tag sale to going to a potluck dinner to going swimming at the Jewish community center to taking us to little league practice they did it as grown up human beings who did not get into the petty squabbles that children got into on the playground and yeah. and when i look at facebook now i see all of these grown ups including like teachers at my kids schools and neighbors of mine and colleagues of mine who are always in spiteful you know Sandlot level battles with other grownups. Yeah, it's interesting. And this is like I'm living and swimming in Rob Bellan right now, which is it's not a guy like previously I'd read a lot of, but I'm coming to appreciate the stuff he's doing. And he did a podcast I was listening to this morning on the way to a breakfast meeting, and he t it was called Punk Wisdom. Uh -huh. <laughs> he said that you know there's pre-conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom, and post-conventional wisdom. He's like pre-conventional wisdom is the it. I want to eat, you know candy every night for dinner and i wanted to you know like it's just sort of it it's 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 unreflective it's impulse driven he said conventional wisdom is what we learn over time collectively in the human traditions to make life work together and so he's he tells a story about like just needing to teach my kids you know uh, this is how you shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye even if you're feeling shy because this is how people meet each other and learn to trust each other and and then he talked about post-conventional wisdom, which he's like, it, which only ever generally comes from people that have mastered the convention, but see places in which it's not working and innovate it. And he said he tells the story of going to a second Iraq war protest, and he says I saw, but like something he said, sometimes the integrationist theorists say, you know, there's there's a conflation. 
sometimes they confuse pre and post conventional wisdom. So he's like, I see these people at this protest. They're just angry. They just effing hate George Bush. They don't know that. But then there's also people that I was engaging that really this was a measured thing in the industrial military industrial complex, you know, and Halliburton, all these things, they're just worried about a, a society perpetually at war. And, you know, I think that what, this is what made me think of this, is you're talking about your parents were conventional people, it sounds like, in the best sense. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that also, that frees people up to innovate mm-hmm. and discover new things. But you never go right from pre to post-conventional. Right. You know, like Picasso didn't start painting abstract stuff. Well, I mean, this, know, like, is the point, this is the point that you'll see made all the time about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, which is how conventional they were, that, that they put on a suit and tie and they used good grammar and proper English and they were unfailingly polite and, and high etiquette level and that they were able to say the most radical things – uh, radical in different ways in their cases, but um, and get a hearing because they knew how to move through an adult world and 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 meet people in that sort of common space of etiquette, civility, adulthood. Um, it didn't mean that they were you know without foibles <laughs> by any means. None of us is, but yeah, I like that. I mean, they they had sort of moved to post conventional wisdom because they'd so thoroughly mastered the conventions. And um, I do sometimes feel like – I guess I'm so disappointed in the conservative movement because I did always feel – I mean I was always to the right of my parents in some ways. And part of it was that I did have a, a kind of analysis that said we need conservatives. Like certainly post-1960s, we needed a conservative impulse to pull us back from the brink of a kind of um, enemy and anarchism. And there was something about having a lot of Americans who still believed in the military and who still believed in church on Sunday and who still believed in dress codes and ma'am and sir, even though I never ma'amed and sir anyone in my life, um, that, that you need that impulse and that it's an admirable impulse and it doesn't have to be a reactionary one. It doesn't have to be violent towards people who are different, um, that it can be used. And conservatives taught me that. I mean, you know, during the 80s, during the, the first political correctness wars, I read Dinesh D'Souza's book, Illiberal Education, terrific book, talking about sort of civility on campus, free speech, um, discor- open discourse, and how the left was destroying that. And it was a very persuasive case. And now you see what's become of him. And so many conservatives were actually, and this goes to Corey Robbins' argument, the political scientist, that in fact, conservatives, he says, have always been revolutionaries. They've always wanted to upturn the, you know, they've never actually been what they claim to be, which is Burkean conservatives. They've always been people who've come in with an angry, fiery rhetoric with someone to hate. And yeah, Steve Bannon says he's a Leninist. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, that's that's what Corey says is like scratch under any, I mean, Ray, and of course, Reagan was, you know, a... Um, you know, a, you know, had a, had a side of him that was, uh, you know, a, a predispensational millennialist, right? And that actually, you know, unscratch any of these guys and they actually have a pretty violent revolutionary impulse. And I feel that with conservatism now. I mean, what I want, I want Tories. I want people who are going to say, calm down, let's, you know, smooth out our shirts, put on a suit and tie and, and ladies, women, whatever the equivalent is, put on however you'd like to, but let's all meet together in our, in our business casual or workplace formal and talk. And we can say really harsh things to each other, but let's do it in a way that honors civil society. And I know a lot more liberals who feel that way now than concert, than I feel that I know conservatives who feel that way. Oh, absolutely. And this is the hillbilly elegant problem too, where he, Jeremy Vance writes about, right? Like that, you know, so much of the country and, 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 you know, you could have a secular civil society. I'm not saying you can't. Well, it, 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 it isn't, it, it's not developed very well. Most yet, of Europe does. 
Right, right, exactly. You, you can't. But for like what hap- what's happened for a lot of people is they are not involved in things like churches or synagogues or civic life. And so there's nothing outside of sort of the family, the job, and the state. There's this vacuum where I think things like manners and a shared civic spirit is cultivated. Yeah. It's a, it, it, it just becomes society becomes alone. It's, it's that. Well, thing. and, and so, it, and so their like mass uh, middle-aged men who are so lonely. Yeah, they, no. And, and so their mass experience becomes Reddit or Trump rallies and, um, uh, and the, and the people keeping alive, the sort of shared, you know, civic common space often live in towns like New Haven, where we have, you know, an urban plan that allows for it. And we have those folkways. I mean, tremendous civic engagement, tremendous, like, basic conservative decency among all of my Obama voting and Clinton voting friends here. I mean, so we're so square, you know, every, we live in a little town like that too. It's a historic borough right outside of Philadelphia, kind of in between Philly and Trenton. And it's a borough. It's, you can walk everything. And you know, my state rep who's a Republican ran on a post. My wife's a nurse practitioner and they're trying to get more practicing authority. In some States, nurse practitioners are functionally like physicians. I mean, they can be your general primary care person other states, they need more supervision, and a lot of that's just political. So she wrote to him to support a bill to give them more permissions. And he not only responded, he became a co-signer. And we, like, see him at the local bar and the coffee shop. I mean, there is, like, yeah, I mean, those kinds of connections where all of a sudden this guy, and we don't vote Republican, like, ever, uh, <laughs> except but we voted for him because he's, like, you know, there is this sense of we're in it together. Yeah. Yeah, that in certain parts of the country, I mean, just you know, but, I, dri- I was I was you know driving to Michigan, going through Ohio, and this sounds so like uh, I don't want to sound like parochial, thing, but it just a lot of it just looked very desolate. Yeah, you know, like yeah. and not like there's not a lot going on. Well, that's why it's so tragic that Republicans are so anti-union because you know um, the union hall used to be the place where a lot of men, in particular, got their relationships, got their politics. Um, got their civic philosophy. And um, it was a place of solidarity. It was not in competition with the church by and large in America. They could go to to mass on Sunday and then to drink at the union hall uh, in the evening and then to pick up their job there in the morning. And such a fundamentally good conservative institution in, in certain cultural ways. And the fact that like the right in America now wants to take all of those jobs and either outsource them or, you know, put them out to the lowest bidder through like, you know, web freelance apps or whatever um, in the name of efficiency. I mean, this is, you know, Trump said he was going to speak to this. And of course he didn't, you know, and of course he, he, I mean, I think a lot of us on the left were just talk about chocolate cake though. You know, when we were the president, it was the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake. It was so, and president G was enjoying it. I could tell. I'm just like, dude, you're really going to use a press conference about a military strike to promo the baked goods at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. That's just so weird. Yeah, it's, 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 and, and look, I mean, the time will come, it'll be in eight or 10 years or something. If we're still all here, when all of the Trump supporters, all the people who are just abs apologizing for him left and right, all of the, um, the Eric Metaxases and people like that are just going to, there's going to be a reckoning where I don't even know what it's going to look like where they're going to, you know, someone will put together a video montage of Trump being, you know, the, the kind of, uh, sniveling man child that he is, you know, talking about cake and, you know, demeaning Nikki Haley in front of a room full of her peers and all the things he does. 
And they're going to, at the very least, have to say, yeah, that was really, it was really a shame that he had to be the person. If they're going to stick with the message and say it was a good vote, they at least will have to own that it was such a tragedy that, that, um, that this man had to be the bearer of that message um, because they believe in civic society and values. And yet, um, and yet I, I always question that. I mean, you know, my feel of a lot of conservatives, and this doesn't mean that I won't sit and talk with them and listen to them. I fundamentally believe that most of them, not all, and not a lot of the serious Christians whom you and I know of, but a lot of them really what they want more than anything is low taxes. I think they're single issue voters. Um, this does not apply to necessarily all of the kind of out of work factory workers um, for whom you know taxes aren't an issue when you're on public assistance, but but to a lot of the people in Connecticut where Trump got you know an alarmingly high percentage of the vote, it's really whoever they think will redound to lower taxes is, is whom they want. And you know who deserves an apology in this country is Billy Bush because he he's a cad and he laughed at Trump and it was awful. But Trump got to be president and this guy's exiled from public life for laughing at it. I mean, he at least should get a radio show in like Manitoba or something. I mean, he died for Trump. I also felt vicarious redemption. I also, I agree with you. I also felt about Billy Bush. I did think that, that that whole conversation was horrible and I thought he was an equal participant in it and I make no excuses for it, but it was a little bit haunting because my eagerness to be liked and to get along is such that I could see myself having done the same thing he did. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and again, Trump, it gets to be president. Yeah. I mean, like, that's right. No, and there's no apology. That's right. It was locker room talk. Yeah. I've never heard that in the locker room, never. but you know, I haven't either. It's, it's, yeah. Can we switch gears now about Orthodox for a second? We can, then I have to go in like five minutes, but yes. All right. I just want to cl- clear something up. So by the way, I heard l- last week's show is great. I mean, you guys are really, it, I always tell people it's the, one of the only podcasts I listen to on the day it comes out. Thank you. Um, Thank it's, you. It's, it's, it's a ritual for me. Thank I love you. it. So uh, last week you had, the host of Jesuit yeah, and she brought booze yeah. for you guys. And, and, uh, you guys talk about Gentiles, how Gentiles are the ones that bring your gifts. And a couple weeks ago, they said duo brought booze. I want to correct the record. Duo brought iced tea and Triscuits. I was the first uh, one to bring booze. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> well, it was actually, it was Liel. Well, that's, that's one good. reason we're having you both back as you bring gifts and they're good gifts. <laughs> yeah. no, it's- I, and I brought pizza goldfish which was the most you're right. bizarre you're right no i mean we you know we have our hall of fame of guests and basically the you know the the hall of fame is like people who can laugh with us and and like enjoy all of our jokes about and aren't precious about our gentile jokes our jewish jokes it's a very particular sensibility not all jews have it by the way and you know the hall of fame is like fashionista simon dunan architect duo dickinson Freelance, Christian, uh, barkeep, Scott Jones. Um, <laughs> That's the nicest thing. You know, it's it's like it's a pretty elite, elite group. Um, I'm trying to think who else. I mean, Ashley was terrific, the host of Jesuitical or Jesuitical, as she says. Um, but it's a pretty elite group. And you were, you know, you're a charter member of it. Who was who the brains behind the architecture of unorthodox like whose idea oh, was me. It? how did it happen me. you you were just like hey we need to do this podcast liel and stephanie were real skeptics they were like well i later found out that liel thought what this is going to last like 3 days <laughs> and they didn't they didn't like the gentile of the week idea they were they were kind of skeptical They're like why would what why what and no the whole thing was my idea the whole design of the show um i mean they are at this point we now know they are completely crucial to the show like if any of us is ever missing, it's a much, much worse show. Oh, absolutely. You, you, yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know, I, such a great 
also like if we were talking about adulting and stuff like that is i think you guys model great conversation civic minded funny uh at sometimes you know it could it could be appropriately crass uh but never rude and it's 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 really it's interesting because i think part of its popularity is people would like to be involved in conversations like that more often with more people yeah i think that's true and i Look, I would love to do it every day. I think we'd be a terrific like two hour morning show where we talked about, you know, there's always some Jewish content, but really we were doing what Don Imus used to do and, and having on guests and talking about well, politics like yeah, yeah. and, and, um, you know, I, I think, I think that it's, a, that's what it is. It's a conversation forum. So Mark, thank you. You are a gentleman, a scholar and a real Jew, a Jew of Jews. <laughs> was I think it was was it Leslie Fiedler had the novel King of the Jews I think which which uh, uh, there's going to be a picture of me on the paperback edition exactly you it's the Daniel Radcliffe Jesus <laughs> uh, Mark Hoffenheimer King of the Jews thanks for having me thanks so much right, later bye thanks for listening to Give and Take if you liked what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please, by all means, check out unorthodox mark oppenheimer's podcast it is amazing it's one of the only podcasts i listen to on the day it comes out i promise you one listen and you'll be a subscriber thanks again for listening to this podcast and until next time fare thee well